In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. First chapter that we dealt with the last couple of weeks is predominantly foundational and introductory. It tells us how Daniel and his friends came to be in Babylon, the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar in that, the trials that they went through, and how God richly blessed them for their faithfulness. We saw last time the... Uh, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate working itself out uh, there in Babylon as Daniel stubbornly refused to bow the knee before um, the Babylonian way or system um, if it contradicted and prevented him from worshipping Yahweh as he was commanded to do. And so we come to chapter 2 now and with all this establishment done we start to see how the positions that Daniel have uh, and his friends have been given in government now start to play a significant role in the uh, God's outworking of his plan in Babylon. Now, we're told here that it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. We know that Daniel was taken in the first wave of captivity, talked about that the last few weeks, and that he was given three years of training. We know that Nebuchadnezzar was called King Nebuchadnezzar, but he was acting as king on behalf of his father. But he, his father died while he was away at the first captivity, and so he returned home to become king. So when it says it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, this is the Babylonian form of reckoning. Now, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how the Jews counted part of a year as a whole year, and the Babylonians, much like us, would only count an entire year as a year. And so this is now, um, Nebuchadnezzar has reigned for two years, and in that, uh, that form of reckoning, I'm um, sorry, I, I said the Babylon. This is at this point we're still looking at the Jewish frame of reference, and so in this, it's the second year according to the Jewish frame of reference, and in the Babylonian frame of reference it would be three years. What we're going to see, by the way, when we come to verse four, is that he starts speaking Aramaic, and the the, the original text shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic from many many chapters of this book. So at this point, it's still um, uh, written in Hebrew and we would presume a, a Jewish frame of reference. Anyway, my point in this is this, that he's had two years of reign, it's the second year of his reign, in our reckoning that's more like three years, so in other words, this is happening in probably a matter of weeks, months at the most, after Daniel's three, year of tr three years of training. We've seen in chapter 1, they had the three years of training, they come before the king, the king says, you are greater, more knowledgeable, more, you have more wisdom, more understanding than all of the people I have already. And here you are being given these prominent positions in Babylonian government. Now in this chapter, almost immediately afterwards, we're seeing this incident. And that's, that's relevant, because... Daniel, like Joseph before him, has this bit of a, bit of a roller coaster life. There he is in, 
in Israel and Judah, and he's part of the royal family, and he's a, a man of privilege and, um, and he, of, of understanding and education. And then he's taken to Babylon, and he's castrated, and he's made a eunuch. And he's trained in the University of Babylon against his will for three years. But at the end of that three years, because he's worked so well, and because of his faithfulness to his God, he is then brought to this prominent position. And now then in this chapter, we're going to see how right away, Daniel and his three friends are immediately put in a position where their death is imminent. So the situation is that Nebuchadnezzar is having dreams. Now, one thing that that underlines the backdrop of this entire chapter is this, that Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant king. He had conquered many nations. Nobody questioned his rule. When he said, this is how it's going to be, it's how it was. And there was no quibble, there was no debate, there was no discussion. He was sovereign and in charge. Now, we're not going to get as far this week, but as we work through the rest of this chapter in the coming weeks, and we look at the various dreams, we see how God gives Daniel understanding that shows the outworking of multiple empires. And one of the things that that distinguishes this image that Daniel sees um, and that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about is that the image, bizarrely, is top-heavy as it were. The gold is the most precious of metals, and that's the head. And you work your way down, and you end up going down to clay. Nebuchadnezzar was this great ruler. In many senses, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, but in many senses, he was greater than the than the uh, Persian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires that were to follow. When he said it, it happened. We've already seen in chapter 1 how Ashpenaz, the chief of eunuchs, wasn't prepared to do anything even remotely different from what Nebuchadnezzar had said because he he was fearful that his life would be taken, literally over something as minor as what food you serve up. So Nebuchadnezzar did not take no for an answer. Here was a man who was completely in control of his life, of his people, and of multiple nations. So when a man like that has a dream that disturbs him and he can't sleep, we have a problem. Because he's in control of everything. And now suddenly something is outside of his control. He's troubled. The word here for troubled is a word that we see quite often in the Psalms. The psalmist who would lament are troubled. His soul is troubled. There is this internal turmoil. This is not a case of, you know, I had a really strange dream. I just can't work it out. It's really troubling. But rather, this is, this is racking him. This is, this is turning him over. He's emotionally distraught over this. This isn't some minor thing. And this king, who is so used to having everything in control, is suddenly out of control and is unable to sleep because of this dream. So it needs to be resolved. And when everybody does as you say and you need things resolved, you get the people who do what you say to resolve the things that are troubling you. That's what you do when you're a, you're a kind of billionaire megalomaniac, which I guess he is for the, the equivalent of those times. And so what he does in verse 2 is he commands various people to come to his assistance. Verse 2, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be uh, summoned 
to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. There's four groups here. We've, we've come across a few of them before, so we'll go nice and quickly. But the first group here is magicians. The word literally is one who holds the stylus. They would be the Babylonian equivalent of the Jewish scribes. They were the experts in the writings of Babylonian uh, occultic um, magical uh, thought and thinking. They were the, the sort of the scholars, as it were, of that group. Then there are those um, here in the text that are called the enchanters. Some versions say conjurers. Um, and as we, again, as we've already seen, they're the ones that would practice the incantations. They would be the equivalent in the Babylonian religions of the priests, what the Levitical priests would have been under the Jewish religion. Then we have the sorcerers. And the sorcerers would be the ones closest to our understanding of sort of sorcery and magic and things like that. That this is where the magicians and the enchanters came together. And these are the ones who are actually practicing what we might call sorcery. It's a reminder to us that the Babylonian system was very much steeped in what we would call the occult. They were worshipping their gods... And it would be very dangerous and unbiblical of us to somehow think that these gods had no existence either in heaven or on earth. But rather they were worshipping beings in the angelic realm created by God that we might commonly more, refer, uh, more commonly refer to as demons. And they would try and get through their access to the demonic realm things done. Spells, incantations, and, and what have you, and various deeds. It's very much what we would consider the occult. Finally, the Chaldeans. We've already seen the word Chaldean. Chaldean is another word for, um, for Babylonian. It's just, it's just nationals. And in this context, the Chaldeans were those wise men who were limited to those of national descent. And that's very important to them because you have to understand that what they're doing is conquering many, many nations and gathering the best from all of those nations to come and join the group of wise men. That's exactly what Daniel and his friends have done. They're Jews, they've come, they've been brought into the country, and now they are the best of the wise men, given this prominent position, but there's still this group of Chaldeans that are sort of, as it were, Babylonian only. No immigrants allowed, as it were. And these are the four separate schools and groups that were gathered, and they really are the full smorgasbord, if you like, of... Um, of what Nebuchadnezzar has at his disposal. If you wanted something magical to happen, if you wanted some sort of recitement or incantation or some sort of spell or some sort of magic, if you wanted to know how to do that, if you want to change something in some way, then he has now brought out not just the big guns, but all of the, the full artillery. Everybody who could possibly help him is now there and they stand before him. So he tells them in verse 3, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. It's intriguing, the shift from plural to singular. He had dreams, plural, but there is this one particular dream that is the one that's really bugging him. And he says, my spirit is troubled, repetition of troubled. Always we make note of these repetitions. He says, my... Um, my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So he's not just simply kept it to himself, how distraught he is. And again, that word troubled in English, we, we, can, we can brush it aside as being less significant than it is. He, he, is, he is deeply, deeply distraught about this. 
This is just churning him up inside. And not only is that something that he is keeping to himself, but now he's expressed it to all of these people. They know that you don't make the king slightly angry or you might die. Now they know he's deeply troubled. The stakes, needless to say, are astonishingly high. And it's not every day they'd have been called before the king either, for that matter. And let alone all of them together. So we now have this, this problem that has been presented and their, their task has been given to them. So then it says, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Now, what happens at this point in the original text is we shift from Hebrew to Aramaic. The Bible is written originally in Greek in the New Testament, predominantly, and in Hebrew in the Old Testament, predominantly. But there are, there are some sections that are written in Aramaic. The largest is here now in Daniel, and this is going to run through to the end of chapter 7. Um, also in the book of Ezra, when they're returning from exile, um, we have some Aramaic as well. The significance of this for us is simply this, that when he's writing in Hebrew, who understands Hebrew? Jews. When he's writing in Aramaic, who understands Aramaic? The Babylonians. And, and, and so there is this shift, which I, I understand to be, you know, not, not like clear-cut, definitively, you know, black and white, but, but predominantly speaking, he's now making sure that what he's saying is understood by the Gentile audience. Remember, this central theme in the book of Daniel is this whole period that we call the time of the Gentiles. That the Jews had autonomy and they ran their own nation, their own way, and they were in charge. And then here we are, the Babylonians come in and the times of the Gentiles begin. And there are limited periods of human history where the Jews are able to again be in control, but they are, they are limited and they do not end the time of the Gentiles. In fact, we're under one of those right now. But the time of the Gentiles will work itself out. And what, we, what we've got to look forward to this next few weeks as we go through this dream is it outlines for us this broad outline of what the times of the Gentiles are going to look like. And it's fascinating because there's elements in the book of Daniel that are futuristic and what we would call eschatological. But there's elements that were futuristic when Daniel said them that for now is just like reading history. Daniel prophesied the coming Medo-Persian Empire before they arrived. He prophesied the coming Greek Empire. He prophesied the coming Roman Empire. And for years and years, scholars said, well, Daniel must have been a late book because otherwise, you know, he couldn't have written this stuff because he he wouldn't have known it. It hadn't happened yet. That's called prophecy. That's the whole point. And then, of course, they have done archaeological discoveries subsequently to show that Daniel is as early as was originally thought, not as later as they would like it to be. And so we're going to see this broad spectrum of the time of the Gentiles, but now as we shift to Aramaic, um, I think the focus is more on a, on a Gentile audience. And so this is what they need to understand. Here's, here's the, what they say to the king. O king, live forever. Stand a greeting to one who can kill you. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. At this point, there's nothing strange. This is exactly what you'd expect. We are the ones who have understanding of magical things. We will interpret dreams. Yep, absolutely, that's on our, that's on our list of qualifications. Dream interpretation, we can do that. The magicians will have studied it at great length. The um, encanters would have... Um, 
would have been involved in the process of, of applying that understanding. The uh, sorcerers would have had a, a hand in that as well, and the Chaldeans would be very, very, very well versed in it. These are the dream team to deal with your dreams, if you pardon the pun. So that's the situation. Absolutely everything's normal, but what's about to happen is Nebuchadnezzar is going to throw them a completely wild curveball. Completely wild. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, notice that they are speaking on behalf of the others, they seem to be the most senior group. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Wow. You know, sometimes there are puzzles that are ridiculously easy to solve without solving. I think the best example of this that we see is sometimes in more Pentecostal churches, there is something that they claim is speaking in tongues that sounds just like babbling, you know? Shalabalabalabalabalabala and all that kind of stuff, right? And there's part of the Bible that talks about interpreting tongues. And someone will say, aha, I have an interpretation. And so they interpret. And there's no way of verifying that. There's zero verification. If, if someone says, I'm going to speak, you know, they're speaking in tongues, and it's Spanish, like a tongue, a language, or French, then somebody who speaks Spanish or French can say, well, that's a good interpretation. That's perfectly true and valid. But, but if someone's just babbling, then anybody can give an interpretation and just make it up off the top of their head. Sort of question how these people being genuine in what they're trying to accomplish. But, but all it is to say is that anybody can take something that nobody understands and say, this is the interpretation. Because nobody can validate it. In the same way, Nebuchadnezzar can say, well, here's my dream. And the people can come out and say, well, this is what your dream means. You talked about falling off a building. That's a fear of this. And here you are naked. And that's something to do with your mother. And blah, 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 blah. And here's all the interpretations of your dream. And it's easy to do. And does Nebuchadnezzar have any guarantee that any of that is true? None. And this is not some minor trifling matter. He is deeply troubled. He needs to know what it means. And he needs assurance. If you guys can really do what you claim to do, then you just tell me the dream. And then I'll know that your interpretation is valid. And notice he says, this is firm. There is no budging on this. There's only two possible outcomes here. Outcome number one is that you guys are greatly rewarded, highly esteemed, essentially will double your pay and you'll, you'll have a bigger home and everything's, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, bombard you with, with, with practical physical blessings for you and your family or I will tear you limb from limb. There's no reason, by the way, to think that that is some sort of uh, idiomatic expression, as we might say today. He was going to literally rip them apart. That was not outside the sphere of Babylonian activity. And then their homes will become ruins. That's a euphemism, by the way. What that actually means is that your homes will become a dung house, a public lavatory. So you'll be dead, but just so you know, when you die, your household home, everybody will be going there to uh, expel waste. That's, that's what you'll get. They're, they're, they're your only two options, so off you go. 
So he says that the word from him is firm. And this is the guy, remember, who a change in diet left Ashpenaz fearful of his life. And now he's obviously pretty troubled. This is a pretty major decision, and he said it's firm. So you wouldn't answer him back. But right now they know that they're utterly, utterly lost here. That they don't know what the dream is. That there's no way of knowing what the dream is. So the only choice they have here is to try and barter a little bit. Will the bartering leave them dead? Quite likely. But but they're going to be dead anyway. And so they do. Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. Because you see that the word from me is firm. In other words, bartering? I can't believe you're actually bartering because you know I've told you my word's firm. So you know there's no point in bartering and there's absolutely no, no, no possibility of you changing your mind. So the only conclusion I can possibly come to is that you're stalling. That's what he's saying. If you do not make the dream known to me, verse 9, There is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Now that's a really interesting expression. Commentators debate a little bit on precisely what this means, but my best understanding of it is simply this, that Nebuchadnezzar has worked out that maybe they're not quite as good as they previously said they were. Right? Someone says, oh, I'm a healer, I'm a healer. What sort of healings do you do? Well, I've got rid of a few common colds and I made a few people's leg an inch longer on one side. Well, some people over there with cancer. Would you want to try and work on those? There's certain things you can get away with, right? And these guys have gotten away with it. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, if you were the real deal, if you hadn't lied to me beforehand, if what you were doing is genuine, you could do this. So what's happening is their inability at this point is undermining all their previous work. I, th- I think that's what's going on here. And so um, they respond again, very brave of them. Um, oh, actually, it finishes speech. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And that's a, you know, credit to Nebuchadnezzar. That's perfectly valid. I mean, if they can tell you the dream when you haven't told them what it is then these are people you can properly trust for interpretation. Verse 10, Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now this is an important passage. Often in the scriptures, people speak beyond what they know. We, as we go through the book of Daniel, which, as we said in our introduction a couple of weeks ago, is not completely chronological. It's set up in a theological structure, going through the times of the Gentiles, and and there's a whole bunch of prophecies. There's prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, and there's prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. And Christ is very much central to this. This is a book that is written much, much later than some of the early Psalms that we've been working through over the last year or so. Psalm 2 in conjunction with Psalm 1, it's very, very clear that God is sovereign, that there are kings, earthly kings and heavenly kings, demonic rulers. 
And they fight against God because they do not like the bonds that he gives them. They don't want to have to obey his rules, do what he says. And so they fight against him. But God has one. He has one who is his son and his king. And this one who is the son and king will be exalted upon a throne. And all of these other enemies will be made into his footstool. And so the warning is given in Psalm 2 that we should kiss the son lest his wrath be upon us. And it ends with the statement that blessed are all who find refuge in him. There is a long established theology over many, many centuries prior to this of God's anointed king. In this phrase, in this passage, in this this speech, as it were, from the Chaldeans, the word king is mentioned multiple times. They said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, no great powerful king. The thing that the king asks, no one can show it to the king. Four kings in one passage. That's an emphasis right there. Four times. Because what this passage is all about, and this is what we're building to today, what this passage is all about, and what Daniel is going to say, and what Daniel is going to prove next time, is that there is but one king overall. That there is one sovereign. That God is omnipotent. That all power, all might, all authority... All dominion is his. And he gives it to whom he chooses. And so here, what is fascinating to me, is in this little speech, just two verses where king is mentioned four times, there is also a reference to the fact that there is not a man on earth who can do this. Why is there not a man on earth who can do this? Because this kind of understanding is an understanding that is in the heavens and not on the earth. That you need gods to tell you this rather than mere men. What is Daniel building up to over the course of the book? That there is one who was prophesied long, long before in the Psalms, in the, book, in the prophecy of Isaiah, in the prophecies of Jeremiah, that Daniel is very familiar with, that there is one who is coming who will be born a man, born of a virgin. And that one, that child who is born, that the government shall be on his shoulders, that he will be God's anointed king, and that all his enemies will be put under his feet. And there is a time when God will come as man and have the answers and be able to do what God alone can do. We have a shadowing of clearer prophecies of the coming Messiah that he will expound upon as the book goes on. No, nobody can do this. No man can do this. This is something that's required from the heavenly realms. But these enchanters, these conjurers, these sorcerers, these Chaldeans, they were supposed to have access to the heavenly realms. And now it seems as if they don't when it really counts. So verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious. The king was very furious. He wasn't just angry. He wasn't just furious. He was very furious. This is again the guy, you get the the diet wrong and he he might kill you. And now he's very furious. So what's he going to do? He knows they can't do it. 
So he commands, end of verse 12, that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. He knows they can't do it. They've clearly shown they can't do it. They've said they can't do it. There is not a man, not amongst the magicians, not amongst the enchanters, not amongst the sorcerers, not amongst the Chaldeans. There is not a man who can do this. Fine. Well, I gave you two options. You say you can't do it. We've got our option. You're all going to be torn limb from limb. That's now what's going to happen. And notice, by the way, in most versions here at this point, it will say wise men. Ever come across wise men in the Bible before? November, you'll be hearing about them again soon, no doubt. The wise men of scripture that came are the same wise men here. The ones who came to the birth of Christ from the east were from Babylon, which is east, geographically speaking. Came from the east, and they were magi. They were wise Babylonian men. They were made up of the magicians, the sorcerers, the encanters. That's who came to the birth of Jesus. How on earth did they know to come to the birth of Jesus? Maybe because somebody called Daniel was in charge of them for a long while, but let's come to that another time as we move through. But for now, I wanted you to note the, the use of the expression wise men there. But anyway, none of this can happen, obviously. No, there's going to be no record of Daniel. There's going to be no teaching about Christ and the Messiah. There's going to be none of that because they're all going to be dead in a few minutes because he's about to kill them all. So the decree goes out. And boy, when a decree goes out, a law is made. He's literally made a law. It's what we might call an executive order. And the order is this, that the wise men are going to be killed. And so... Daniel now becomes aware. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel has been blissfully aware, unaware of all of this. Now, let's just be clear on this. The magicians, the encanters, the sorcerers of the Chaldeans have all been brought before the king. What's Daniel been qualified to do? To be amongst those people. We know, because the timeline is given to us, that his training has, has probably just finished... And he was greater than all of them. But they haven't brought him with them. He's the new boy. And somehow, the one person that could help them, they've left out. Daniel is completely unaware of all of this. I think there's some, some interesting human psychology going on there, insofar as, you know, like, he aced his test, he's one of the best. Yeah, but he's new, he's got to learn, he's not as good as us. And they don't bring him along. So the first that Daniel and his friends know about this (laughs) is when they're being rounded up to be killed. That's literally the first they know about it. Boy, I wish I had this sort of clarity of mind when someone was trying to kill me. This, this, This is amazing. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Can we just take a moment on that? Prudence and discretion. Half of us, when somebody cuts us up in traffic, we lose all prudence and discretion, let alone when someone's trying to kill us. There's a model here, is there not? Faithfulness in the darkness. Faithfulness under pressure. This is a real deal right here. So he answers with prudence and discretion. And this is what he says to Arioch, another, another little side character, the captain of the king's guard. Why is Arioch involved? Because he's the one who's going to kill him. And he's the one who had gone out to all the wise men of Babylon. So now we come to verse 15. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, 
Why is the decree of the king so urgent? <laughs> Notice, he's not saying, why is, he, why is he killing us? It's like, why so quickly? Why right now? You don't question stuff in Babylon. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. So now he's up to speed. Verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now that's bold. Now, I, 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 we obviously need to take a step back. When we see something in the Bible that is descriptive, we mustn't read it as prescriptive. In other words, just because this happened doesn't mean that we should say, well, God's going to do this for me or that for me. We have no basis for that at all. We spent some time the last few weeks showing how the text carefully revealed to us in the first chapter that Daniel had supernatural gifting imparted by the Holy Spirit. What enabled him to be able to do what he did, to be able to come, come up tops, as it were, in the, uh, in the testing before Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1, is that he had the Holy Spirit, something very unusual in the Old Testament saints, and he was gifted with prophecy and dreams and visions. His friends, they came out very well in the test as well, but what they had was simply human gifts. They were, they were gifted in understanding and learning and they were capable and they worked hard and they were the best of students. Daniel was too, but he had this distinction that God had given him something supernatural that he was aware of. And that is the basis for his confidence. Notice none of the friends at this point will say, well, you know what? We will tell you the answer to your dream. Why? Because they can't. There's no answers in the books of the magicians. There's no answers amongst the encanters. They don't have answers. They are experts in that system, but the system has no answers. The answer can only be given by going outside of the human realm and going to the heavenly realm. And the only one who has any possibility of doing that is Daniel. And so... That's what is going to happen. You say, okay, so Daniel then is the one that is going to be the hero. Daniel is the only one who can help. This is all about Daniel. Well, no, 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 no. Look at verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now there's a lot in this uh, couple of verses. First of all, he's talking about a mystery. And I just want to mention that part. I'm going to have to talk about that a lot more in the coming weeks. But the word mystery here, don't think of Scooby-Doo, don't think of Sherlock Holmes. Okay, The word mystery here is a theological term. And we're talking about something that is hidden that additional information needs to be given so that it's revealed. In the New Testament, the vast majority of material in the New Testament is nothing new. It's nothing new. Even in the book of Revelation, people will say, oh, Revelation is weird, who could possibly understand it? Well, I guess you can't if you haven't read the Old Testament, because that's where 90% of it's found. The main part, Revelation, is simply chronologizing, chronologizing, I don't know, putting in order, you know what I mean. Um, It's putting into order all the revelations of the Old Testament that were gathered, you know, that were were scattered. 
So, so there really isn't that much new in the Old Testament, but occasionally in the New Testament we come across this word mystery. And, and the, the, the theological concept of mystery really comes from the book of Daniel. In other words, there are things that were revealed in the Old Testament. We know we don't need the New Testament. I could, I could preach to you, not just a sermon, I could preach to you a series of sermons arguing that Jesus is both man and God from the Old Testament without turning to the New Testament once. It's an Old Testament concept. We know that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. We know that Jesus is going to um, come at a particular time. We know that we know we know various things about the coming of Christ. We know his line- his lineage and, and whom he's descended from. And in one case, who he's not descended from. We we know a whole bunch of stuff about Jesus as it is revealed in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament also revealed that there were going to be Gentiles who were saved as well as the Jews. Jewish salvation is a the main theme of the Old Testament, but Gentile salvation is there as well. But what we have in the New Testament also is we have the church. And the church is not simply Jews being saved and Gentiles being saved. It's Jews and Gentiles as one body being saved the same way with no middle wall of partition and no distinction and no delineation between them. That was never revealed in the Old Testament. Which is why Paul calls it a mystery. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there's, here in this mystery, what is he saying? He's saying there is something that we don't have an answer to, and God is going to have to reveal it. The Daniel, later on in the book of Daniel, Daniel says, hey, I know when this captivity is going to end. Oh, wow. Has God spoken to you, Daniel? No, I was just reading Jeremiah. That wasn't a mystery. The information was there. You just had to dig it out by hard work. This is a mystery. The stuff that is in this dream is stuff that's never been revealed before. Something new. It's a mystery. The other thing I want you to know, and this is the most important part of these verses, is this. And this is crucial. He called upon his friends to pray. He called upon his friends to pray. Unless the Lord builds the house, we build in vain. About a century and a half ago, there was a man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon, most of you have heard of. He preached in my native country, in, in, in London, in a place that was, for you Americans at least, bizarrely called Elephant and Castle. Yes, there is such a place. He preached at a church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Nobody had invented speakers, there were no microphones, and yet he preached to literally thousands of people every Sunday. They crowded to come to him. He was so significant in his ministry that when he died, Queen Victoria had to make a statement concerning his passing. He got so, it got, he was, his ministry was in, in human terms so successful, but it got to the point where his evening services, he forbade the members of the church to come. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Me banning you from evening services? You're welcome, 6.30 by the way. But, but he banned them from coming unless they brought unbelievers with them. There were so many people who wanted to come and hear the gospel that he literally forbade those who were saved to come unless they brought unbelievers with them. That was the sort of time that he was in. That was the sort of ministry that God blessed him with. These days, most churches don't even bother with evening services anymore. One day, um, I think it was Moody, came over from America to visit Spurgeon. Pre-airplanes would have been a long boat journey, but he came over and he came to visit 
And he says, how do you, how do, you do this, Charles? How is it that you do what you do? He says, let me show you. And as the service was about to begin, he took him down to the basement. And the basement was full of people, mostly women. And they were praying fervently. He says, this is the engine room of our ship. The Daniels always get the headlines. The Daniels are the ones that you, that you read about, that you hear about. Ah, oh, he prophesied, he did this. And, and they're in big names in Christianity. And there are those people who've had successful ministries and have thousands of people following them and, and have written so many books and stuff. And then what you don't see, but what God sees so clearly, is all the silent people. The, the quiet people. The people in the shadows. The people who are lifting this person up in prayer. The people are holding him accountable for faithfulness. The people who are there working alongside. The people who are helping to, to do all the various works of ministry. And there is somebody who's on the pedestal. But the work does not happen with one person. Our job in this life, our purpose in this life, is to pour our lives out in ministry. None of us are called to be Daniels in this day and age. But we're all called to something, and we're all gifted to something, and we all have gifts that God's given us, and we need to do it. And God will use those gifts, and it may well be that as he uses our giftings, it's done in such a way that it's silent, that there's no recompense, there's no adulation, and there's precious little reward. Well, praise God for that. For your treasures will be in the next life rather than this one. But Daniel was well aware this was a task that was far beyond one man. So he said, come on guys, you who trust in Yahweh, let's cry out to him or else we're all dead. And that's what they did. They prayed. And this really is a passage of two prayers and that's the first one. And they pray and they Seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. That's a phrase that is used repeatedly of God in this, in, in this period of history. He is now the God of heaven. You go through the Psalms and God is he's Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. In English versions, it will be Lord in capital letters. The name of God. The name of God was spoken because the name of God wasn't just how he was referred to. The name of God spoke of his character. It spoke of his glory. And it spoke, of course, mostly of all, of the covenant love that he had with his people. And so when you praised him, you were praising his holy name. Hence, Lord, Lord, Lord. But there were times, there's a, there's a period in the book of Psalms that's known as the Elohim Psalms. They're Psalms that are more typically um, Psalms of lament rather than Psalms of praise. There's psalms where God seems distant and far off. And it seems, humanly speaking, from their circumstances, that God has somehow reneged with his covenant with them. That somehow the people that God promised he would punish are flourishing. And the people that God promised he would bless are being harmed, hurt, troubled. And these are the Elohim psalms. And what we see in Israel's history is from the time of the captivity and even after the exile in the post-exilic era that God is so often referred to 
as simply Elohim, one of the gods. He's distant. He's the God of heaven, the Elohim of heaven. He's far off. He's not with us anymore. The end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle was complete, and whoosh, the presence of God shows up. It's quite dramatic. You read 1 Kings, and you see the, uh, the first temple of Solomon completed, and exactly the same thing happens. Whoosh, the presence of God shows up in all of his glory and majesty as he comes into the temple and goes into the Holy of Holies. And God is now with his people because he dwells in the temple. But the prophet Ezekiel, through chapters 8 through 11, he gradually speaks of this departure from the Holy of Holies, departure from the outer courts, and departure from the Mount of Olives, and how God's presence left Israel. That's why, by the way, that when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the temple in a few years' time, in the third wave of captivity, that nobody had their faces burnt off. God wasn't there. He'd left. Where is he? He's gone to heaven. He's now the God of heaven. This is Daniel in Aramaic, in a foreign land, working through how you relate to God when he is distant. If you think you can relate to that, maybe to some degree, not completely, because the next big whoosh happened in Acts chapter 2, when God sent his spirit to the church, and we are now the temples, so God is very much with us again. But that's for another story. Okay, so they are praying that the God of heaven will give them mercy, because otherwise they're going to be destroyed. And folks, that is really the basis of most of our prayers, is it not? We are undeserving, we are constantly fallen, and we ask him every time that we ask him for anything, we're asking for mercy. Show your mercy upon us, O oh God. So, now we come to uh, verse 19. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. It's just so understated, isn't it? Notice the distinction, though. What did Nebuchadnezzar have? A dream. He was dreaming, and while he's dreaming... He saw something. I woke up early this morning because I had a troublesome dream. But it wasn't that troublesome. But it was, I, had a, I had a dream. And I, the, stuff, the stuff was going on, and there it is in my head. It's just a dream. Daniel had a vision. He had a vision. So during the course of the night, God showed him something as real as, if, as any of us being awake, seeing each other before our eyes now. Daniel didn't see it as some vague dream that he had to recollect after he woke up. But rather, during the nighttime at some point, while awake, he sees the vision. In other words, Daniel is going to have even greater clarity on this than the king is. But as I say, it's understated. So Daniel blesses the God of heaven. Notice the repetition. They've prayed to the God of heaven. The God of heaven has answered their prayer. So now they bless the God of heaven. And so what we will do for the remainder of our study this morning, just for the last few minutes, is we're going to look at this second prayer, which is outlined for us. This is them saying thank you to God's mercy. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Nebuchadnezzar is still planning on killing them. It doesn't, they don't know exactly how things are going to work out when Daniel goes before the king. What matters is that they asked for this and God has given it to them. And so they can be rejoicing. They needed to know what the vision was. Daniel was the only one that could do it. So they got together and they prayed and God showed mercy. And now they're going to give thanks. 
Blessed be the name of God. Notice God, not Lord, Elohim. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. When God created the heavens and the earth, when he created all the creation we see around us, when he created mankind, he was worthy of mankind's praise. From the second he put his breath within us, he was worthy of our praise. And until the very end, he will continually be worthy of our praise. Blessed be his name forever and ever. In other words, the scope of God is eternal. To whom belongs wisdom and might? Daniel did not have the wisdom. God had the wisdom and God gave Daniel the wisdom that God had. It was God's wisdom because God knows all things. In other words, God is omniscient. God not only knows all things, but he can do all things. He has might. In other words, he's omnipotent or powerful. God is omniscient and omnipotent. Man, listen. I'm going to run out of time. We might have to come back to this next, next week because there's some lovely parallel passages. Daniel is a student of Scripture, folks. He's a student of Scripture. When we pray, do you notice when we pray in this church, whoever's doing the prayer, I do it sometimes, Jenny does it sometimes, Becky and Jason do it, Michael does it, a few people do the prayer. And whenever you hear prayers in this church, you're always going to hear things. You say, oh, that, that phrase sounds familiar. You know why? Because it's in the Bible. That's why it sounds familiar. Daniel's prayers are saturated with scripture. Why? Because Daniel is saturated in scripture. We might get there. We might have time. But this is, there's nothing new here. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In other words, if you know something, God's blessed you with that knowledge. If you have some sort of blessing, some sort of gift, God's given you that gift and that blessing. If you got up this morning and you breathed, God gave you that breath. If you got up this morning and you were able to to walk, God gave you that ability. Every blessing is from God. But more importantly in this section here, it says, and and this this is foundational to everything. Daniel now knows the vision, okay, which is why he's praying this way. God changes times and seasons. Why does he say that? Because God's going to change the times and seasons. He's going to see a vision that is representative of the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then another fourth empire that begins with the Romans. Daniel understands this. And he says, God gets to do this. He gets to change the times and seasons, how things are run, how laws are run, how things work, how things function, because he gets to take kings and put them in place and then to remove them as well. God is sovereign. We've seen this in our series on Caesar and the church. All authority is God's and he delegates it to whom he chooses. And to everyone whom he delegates authority, that authority is limited. It's limited in person, limited in realm, and limited in extent. So the question that we have with regards to governments and rulers and kings is not what does the king want to do, what does the king say he can do, but what does God, who has all authority, what authority has he given to them? And here Daniel is, under the hand of a king, who has no authority to kill him at all. You say, but he could kill him. That's might, that's not authority. If somebody comes to your house at night with a gun 
and steals all your belongings by putting the gun against your head, they had no authority to do that. They weren't allowed to do that. But they had might, and so they did. Nebuchadnezzar did not have the authority to take Daniel's life. He thought he did. Why did he think he did? Because he said he did. This is your weekly reminder that the government is not God. That is the, that is the belief in statism. Statism is a religious belief whereby we think that the government is some form of demigod and it can pronounce whatever it likes and give itself whatever authority it likes. It cannot. All authority is God and he delegates to whom he chooses and that authority is limited. But it may have the might, which is why we dealt with pragmatic issues in week three of that series. What Daniel is saying here is this. That there is a king who may be at way outside of the boundaries or authority that God gave him, who may well have the might to take a life. But God is bigger than that. He is more mighty. All authority, all dominion, all power is his. And he has all knowledge. And he can give the knowledge that Daniel and his friends require to undermine the might of the king and the will of the king. Because God is sovereign even over the will of man. This is a profound prayer, friends. And it's a very timely reminder for us in our our condition at this time in the world. And so God will change the kings. And he'll make new kings. And those who are wise in understanding, that's Daniel, his friends, God has given them that wisdom. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Now, that's a lovely merging of those ideas. That here we have something that wasn't known, that needed to be revealed, and so God told Daniel, gave him wisdom, and now there is that understanding, and it's been revealed. What was in the darkness, the dream, has now come to light. But he's living in darkness. He's living outside of his land, away from his family. He's being castrated. He's been forced schooled in the University of Babylon. And he's been put high up in this whole, this whole governmental setting because, um, because of the, 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 the edict of Nebuchadnezzar, who had no authority to do that. Had the authority to take them because God gave him authority, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. But the way in which they were treated was way beyond his bounds. So... Daniel is living in darkness. What's God doing? He's bringing light into that darkness. My prayer for us this morning, friends, is is simply this. I don't think that when you have some predicament before you, when you find yourself, perhaps as many of you I know are, faced with a potential job loss and decisions to be made and very difficult things in that regard, I don't believe that you should go to God and expect some sort of vision in the night. We don't live in that time and God hasn't gifted you like he gifted Daniel. But God is still just as able to bring light into our darkness. God is just as reliable as he was for Daniel. We, like his three friends, can bow our knees in prayer and say, God, please step in. You change times and seasons. You take away kings. You lift up kings. God, we cry out to you. It's a very good and useful prayer. And so to you, O God of my fathers, there's the Jewish heritage in the midst of Babylon. 
the irony of that written in Aramaic. I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. That's fascinating. Look at this. At the beginning of the prayer, to whom belongs wisdom and might, and you have given me wisdom and might. Well, we can see that he's given Daniel wisdom. What do you mean you've given him might? Well, I'll tell you how he's given him might. The most powerful man on earth at that point had decided he was going to kill Daniel, and Daniel's about to go to him and say, no, you're not. That's might. That's power. God gave it to him. You've given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And guys, kings do matter. When they're good and when they're bad. When they overstep their authority and when they don't. It affects us and it impacts us. And we need to respond in a godly way. And that means saying to the king, you don't have any authority, king, other than what God gives you. See that again and again in the book of Daniel. It means standing up for what's right. It means not budging. It means standing firm. It means trusting God in the midst of darkness. All of these things we can and must still do because we trust in one who stands in heaven, Lord of all, to whom belongs all authority and all might, all dominion, all power, all wisdom, and who loves the prayers of his saints, cares ever so deeply. And when we care for others, we must remember that our care is a fraction of the care of God. His nature is to have mercy. We have a covenant relationship with him. And it is only fitting and right that even when he seems distant, when he seems to be the God in heaven, that we still continue to cry out to him always. He is our God. And he will, at the end, be proven to be faithful. We'll complete this next week. Let's take a time to pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the model of Daniel and his friends entrusting in you. Father, we, we find our ta- ourselves in times where kings overstep their boundaries and people are put in difficult predicaments. May we cry out to you. You who changes times and seasons. You who sets up kings and takes down kings. You who has all wisdom and all might. May our trust be in you and in you alone. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your compassion towards us. May our lives be wholly yours this day and forevermore. Amen.